listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Somebody said, one of the reasons God wrote the Bible is because he loves stories. The Bible is a book of stories of very real people living in a very real world outside the Garden of Eden and how they faced and struggled and all of that. And so my sermon title is, Your Beautiful, Messy, Complicated Story Matters. Tell it. We need a lot more storytelling. A lot more storytelling. And I'm about to celebrate my 80th birthday coming up in two weeks' time. So I have a long story to tell. And I found Psalm 71, and I found that David beat me to it. Uh, I could have written those words, and so we'll use Psalm 71 today as our text. And the reason we're not handing out Bibles is because I'm using the, the voice translation in the Scriptures. It'll be right on the screen, and you'll be able to read them and just follow along as we just kind of look at that portion, how, how that story is very much my story. So this will be a little different service, a different kind of a sermon I could sing part of it, this is my story, this is my song, but I won't torture you with my singing ability. But the story that I want to share today, and parallel it right from Psalm 71, is my story. That's the one I know the best. And it's a biased story. All of our stories are. Chuck Yeager put it this way when he was in his 70s and he came to know the Lord just in very late life. And he was telling his story on the national television program, and I heard it. And at the very beginning, he said, by the way, this is the way I remember it. That may not be exactly the way it happened, but that's the way I remember it. And I love the way Carol Kent put it on the importance of storytelling. She said, in telling our real-life stories, we are no longer hiding behind the masks of denial, embarrassment, guilt, or shame. We're just us. People who've had some good days in life and people who've had some very bad days. We've quit pretending that everything is fine and that everything is always grand. We find a way of relating without the facade and without the need of impressing others. We can just be real and tell it like it is and like it was. That brings tremendous freedom, and so the bottom line this morning is we are all a bunch of flawed human beings living in an imperfect world. Now, let me read, and by the way, all of our lives, all of our lives are just like a three-act drama, a three-act play, and we'll see all three of those acts, even as I kind of share my story in parallel with this. First of all, Act 1 is a period of unique preparation. Unique preparation. For me, that was from birth to about 21 when I graduated from Bible college. So let me read these words from Psalm 71, verse 5, 6, and verse 17. For you are my hope. You, Lord, have been the source of my confidence since I was young. I have leaned upon you since I came into this world. I have relied on you since you took me safely from my mother's womb. I have a twin brother. Mother didn't know she was expecting twins. I was born first, and the midwife said, hey, there's another one. John was born half an hour later. And by the way, My oldest brother died when he was two. He died down in Mexico where my parents lived at the time. And his name was Peter as well. So I'm a repeater. They didn't want to lose the name, and so they kept the name Peter. So when I came into this world, I've relied on you since you took me safely from my mother's womb, so I will ever praise you. You have taught me since I was young, O God, and I will proclaim the wonderful things you have done. Amen. My story, I'm going to speak it 
fast just in Reader's Digest version. Born in a log cabin in southeastern Manitoba. Nine siblings in the family born into poverty. We didn't know we were poor because nobody ever, ever told us that we were poor. Horse and buggy days, born into an old colony. Mennonite family, couldn't speak a word of English when I started first grade. Um, and all of these challenges that we faced, my folks moved to Mexico to get away from all you English people. To them, anybody that couldn't speak Low German was English. So there was all kinds of different English people in their thinking. And then I married an English woman, and that kind of rattled the cage a little bit, but that's a little ahead of my story. So spoke Low German, all kinds of rules and regulations, blissfully ignorant. There was no media, no telephone, no radios, no newspapers. I didn't know World War II was going on, so I wasn't worried about it. Sometimes I think I know too much now. It would be blissfully ignorant not to know all the stuff that's going on in the world. But there I was, limited education, knew nothing of the Bible, had no hope, feared death, and then a turning point came. My oldest brother, Henry, 10 years older than me, ran away from home as a rebel and was working on a farm in Saskatchewan, and he met Jenny, and she seemed like a pretty cute chick, and so he asked whether she would go with him on a date, and she turned him down. She said, no, I don't think God would want me to date you because I'm a Christian. Oh, Christian, what do you mean, Christian? And her refusal began a search for him, and he had a kind of a radical Damascus Road experience, and he came home and talked about being born again and saved, and boy, that, that brought some real concerns on the part of my parents, and all of our relatives were all old colony Zummerfelder, and they thought, our, and by the way, God did an amazing work within about a two-year period of time. Talk about household salvation. All eight of us, plus mom and dad, came to know the Lord within about a two-year period. And then, my, all our relatives, they thought we had taken a long walk off a short pier, and they were afraid of us. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? And so, the challenge was, where do we go from here? A radical change. My parents were shocked. We moved to Abbotsford and found a great church there and got involved in that church. And even at the age of 17, I became youth president. By the way, I'd quit school at eighth grade. You know, I was told, you're just going to be a dumb farmer, so why go to school? Now, there is no such a thing as a dumb farmer. A dumb farmer is a broke farmer. And so, but that's what I was told. And so I quit. Then moved to BC, found out I had to go another extra year, so I took grade nine. I, I graduated many times in my lifetime, folks. I graduated grade eight. I graduated from grade nine and quit. Became a carpenter. And one Sunday evening... The youth were in charge of the service, so I was chairing the service. And after the service, dear Mr. Reimer, wasn't even an elder or a deacon in the church, just an ordinary one, a lay lamb. He came to me and he said, Pete, have you ever thought of being a pastor? I said, no, never thought of it. He said, I think you should. I think you'd be a good pastor. That was my call to ministry. I couldn't shake it. So don't ever minimize speaking a word of encouragement to a teenager, whether he's got earrings and colored hair and, and tattoos all over the place. You will never know what word will mean and God wants to use. And so uh, that, that's, that's exactly what happened. And so... That was my call of God. So there were strange stirrings in my heart at that point. I, I went off to those days, some prairie Bible schools allowed a couple of dumb bunnies like my twin brother and myself to come to Bible school never having finished high school. So went off to Winnipeg Bible College and took a couple of years there and then transferred to Briarcrest. And uh, well, what a challenge. There I met Shirley and that changed a lot of things, and we worked together at Canadian Sunday School Mission here in BC up at Nest Lake Bible Camp, going back there next week to go fishing with my buddy, and all the memory lane kind of things kind of come back, and then now once we graduated together, Shirley and I, now what? And I realized that this period of unique preparation is a period that you literally should be challenged to answer three questions. Unique preparation. And the questions are simply these. They're easy to remember. Who will be my master? 
Who will be my mate? And what will be my mission? Who will be my master? My true North Star. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is that true or isn't it? I had to make a choice. And I chose Jesus to be my master. Who will be my mate? And I chose Shirley. And wow, what a team. We had a theme for our wedding. We were married right here in Kelowna 58 years ago. Kelowna was in existence by then, a little bit. No bridges, ferry, and all of that type of stuff. And we got married here. And we had a great big theme made of chicken wire and Kleenex, different color Kleenex. And you know the words were on it, united to serve. United to serve. That's been our mission. That's been our focus. And then the final question, what will be my mission, my calling? What will be my calling? My mission statement, I've written it out some years ago. I exist. I exist to do what? To live a spirit-filled, Bible-anchored life that leads people to follow Jesus and leaves a godly legacy for those who follow me. And you want to get me to tears pretty quick. And God has blessed us with four children. We got one of each. They're all uniquely individual. Three sons and a girl. And God has called all of them to ministry. And in a variety of ways, and, and to realize God's calling upon them. And they say, you can't say you've been a successful parent until your grandkids turn out better than you did. And to see your grandkids making wise choices, to make that choice, who will be my master, who will be my mate, and what will be my mission, to have a grandson call, Grandpa, just want to let you know that I've accepted a call to pastor together with my dad in Huntington Beach, California, where he's pastored that same church for 26 years. And I was there for his first Sunday. And my son introduced his son. He said, it's interesting. Grandpa is here, and he's been in ministry 58 years. I've been in ministry for, for 30 years, and my son's been in ministry for two weeks. And to be together, loving God together, and serving God together so my calling, and that will be my mission statement. So there is a unique period of preparation. For me, it was from birth to 21. Then there was a period of active serving, actively serving from age 21 to 75. That's, that's 54 years. Now let me read these words from Psalm 71, verse 3, 5, 16, 20, 22, and 24. You have given the order to keep me safe. You are my solid ground. For you are my hope. I will come with stories of your great acts. I will bear witness to your merciful acts. You have made me see hard times. You've, I've experienced many miserable days, but you will restore me again. Oh, my God. All day long I will declare how your justice saved me. For those who have plotted to bring harm are now bring me harm are now ashamed and humiliated. My story, looking back, I'm the most shocked 80-year-old in the world, I think. As I look back. I'm shocked and surprised. This vessel of clay, I never had any big dreams or plans or goals. I never said, someday I'm going to do this and I'm going to pastor a big church and I'm going to travel all over the world and I'm going to be this and do this. And, and never realizing, surely never had the privilege of serving in 65 different countries. And ministering the Word of God and teaching marriage and family life conferences on native reservations in Shibugama, Quebec, and the hung in Hungary and Ukraine and Poland and Thailand and all over, and the opportunity of, of serving God. What a, what a blessing, what a privilege. And here, I was told you just going to be a dumb farmer, but I only lived one day at a time. I went to the school of hard knocks, where the school colors are black and blue, and the school yells, ouch! But it's an amazing way to learn. 
And so our, my first church was in Arlie, Saskatchewan, Russian Mennonite Brethren Church. All their services were in Russian. Somebody said, my father's a Russian, my mother's a Russian, I'm just taking my time. That was about only Russian I knew. But they wanted a young man to come in to preach in English because they were losing their young people and they were wise enough to realize we have to kind of go with the flow here. And so I would preach Sunday morning for 20 minutes in English and the senior pastor who had never had any theological training, he was a farmer, he was a godly man. There were times I found out later that, that he didn't have time to prepare his sermon, so he took notes while I was preaching, and he re-preached my sermon in Russian. That's one way to do it. And so, and while I was there, I went back to high school. I did everything backwards, and I finished my high school in one year. And then we got married right here in Kelowna. And had the opportunity, as I said, of, of United to Serve. I definitely married up. You can be sure, and the privilege we've had of ministering together as a team has been was such an awesome blessing and privilege. And, and if any time I preach, I want to make sure that my Shirley is there in the pew. And it just doubles the unction and the favor of God because you folks need to see, is this guy just preaching? What's your marriage like? What's your family? If it doesn't work at home, don't export it. Who you are is far more powerful than what you say. And that's why the testimony today. Folks, this is real stuff for you young couples. I'm so thrilled to see all the young couples. And if there's one thing that blesses me at this stage is when I have the privilege of meeting with young pastors and I meet with them all the time. You see, I want to light candles. I don't want to just curse the darkness. I want to be an encourager. I want to be a Barnabas to bless others. And we are in that united to serve. And then we moved to Jamestown, North Dakota. And that's where, as I was pastoring, I started liberal arts college. I crammed four years of college into 15. All the time while I was pastoring. And had the privilege of starting there at Jamestown College in Jamestown, North Dakota, and then also University of Saskatchewan and, and uh, University of North Dakota and Western Oregon State University. And finally got my bachelor's degree as well as a master's degree. Now, if you live by degrees, you're going to die by degrees. Get all the education you can, then can all you get and, and sit on the can. In other words, if it gets you, then there's something wrong. But use it to uh, realize discipline is important. So I'm not minimizing. But remember that, that as we did that and then started a new church in Saskatoon, Pioneer North Park Bible Church, and there we had two more babies. And, and then I was invited to join the staff at Briarcrest for three years as traveling evangelist was away about 80% of the time while my wife was at home looking after three preschool boys and she was so called to ministry and she struggled during that time I was away having meetings and people were getting saved and blessed and and she was at home wiping noses and seats and washing floors and dishes and God is this is this what you called me to I thought you wanted me to be a missionary in some foreign country somewhere. And here I am just sitting in Kelowna waiting for Pete to come home. And the day I leave, the kids would get sick and they got better the day before I came home. It was amazing. But it was an amazing, challenging. You learn more. People learn far more from your scars than from your trophies. And when you walk through stuff and just see God's grace sufficient you realize that God's grace is sufficient for, for every one of us every time. Because to me, the key attitude has been to wake up every morning with a sense of inadequacy. God, I've never done this before. Parenting, the best advice that Shirley and I can give to you parents is wake up every morning with the attitude, I don't know how to do it. Our daughter phoned us up when her um, two boys were just one and two, and she said, Mom, I'm being psychologically abused by my kids. And I wake up in the morning, and as soon as I wake up, they start demanding of me, do this and do that, and then, oh, I don't want this and I want that. They try to control everything. And you don't know how to do it. Dr. Laura says, the reason I haven't written any book on how to raise teenagers, I don't know how to do it. 
and to have a sense of inadequacy of real that's a sense of dependence that's admitting I don't know how to do it help so as we continue to serve and then join the staff at Briarcrest in time also for a couple of years a professor on campus remember God doesn't call the trained he trains the called and he's good at it. Leaders are learners. What I lacked in degrees, I made up in passion and connection. And by the way, I was on staff at Briarcrest when Irwin Lutzer, uh, Meldon's uncle, was there. And we became great friends. Irwin had his doctorate, and here I was still trying to get my bachelor's degree. And we taught the same classes. And I didn't have all the degrees, but I had some passion. I had some enthusiasm. And you got to fool them in one thing, I guess. And to be dependent upon God. And then while we were there, we, I, always, I, I had a call to be a pastor and to be a shepherding pastor, not a ranching pastor. Got a call from a fair-sized church in Dallas, Oregon. And what a wonderful place. There for eight and a half wonderful years of pastoring in Oregon. And, and our kids largely grew up there for all of those years. But it was there that we sat across from the t desk of the, the best oncologist on all of Pacific Northwest of the United States with the news, Shirley, you have the fastest and the deadliest of all cancers. You're 37. Your daughter is one year old and your oldest is 10. I want you back in the hospital in two days and I'm gonna do six and a half hours of surgery I don't know if I can spare your life. That's 45 years ago. That's 45 years ago. Folks, we don't only believe in miracles, we live it. We live it every day. And to just see the hand of God and the grace to live with that big sea where you don't know how many times I've buried her in my mind when a new pain showed up or a new growth or something and you wonder, uh-oh. She's the longest surviving cancer patient in North America that had the kind of cancer that she had that had spread to the extent that it spread and is symptom-free today. So that's why I want her here. So I don't have to just preach. I could just have her stand up here and see the grace of God and the power of God. And you know what? it sure makes you dependent upon God, and that's not a bad way to go. When you realize every day is a gift, every day is an opportunity, and we had amazing, and somebody also says, nothing like the local church when the local church does it right. The corollary is also true, there's nothing like the local church when the local church does it wrong, and and I'm sure many of you have come from situations where churches have done it wrong, you've been wounded by the church. And you're here today, and you're looking and searching for what God wants to do in your life and through your life and with a group of people who are not proud but are broken and humbled before God. So those eight amazing years, in fact, the first 20 years of our ministry, there was innocence and glory. Everything was always going right, and we thought, oh, this is the way it's going to be. Man, everybody loves us. We love everybody else. There's growth here. There's development, and praise God. God saw that we needed something else. So a call came from a large church in Michigan, suburbs of Detroit. And uh, God saw that we needed to face some opposition. We needed to face some enemies. We needed to face some betrayal. We needed to face some false accusations. As Martin Luther has put it, God, there's nothing that is done with such vehemence as what is done in the name of religion. And Martin Luther King said, I was hurt more by the silence of my friends than by the words of my enemies. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful building, almost like a Taj Mahal. Wonderful people. Most pastors who leave churches under pressure do so because of two or three people in the church, regardless of the size of the church. Regardless of the size of the church. So the pastor that followed me after five and a half years there committed suicide three years into his ministry. And a church that was about 1,000 people dwindled down to 200 and eventually shut down with that denomination. 
You see, God, nobody gets away with anything. God knows exactly what's going on. God, God alone has all the facts. And God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So I don't want to do God's work for him. And the devil, what does he do? He is the accuser of the brethren, so I don't want to do the devil's work either. I just want to be a servant of the Lord. So after a very painful closure there, for the first time in our lives, we had enemies. You didn't have a clue what that was. Now what do you do? And these were elders. Beware of guys that meet you at the airport and buy you all kinds of gifts for Christmas. They'll be the first ones to turn on you. I've always said two kinds of people that I fear in the church are the, the power brokers and the legalists. And often they're the same people. And then you get all kinds of problems and you get difficulties and it's, it's, it's sad, but it's... And then from there, Shirley said, Pete, quit the ministry. Go to be, go to be a carpenter. You know, eight to five. And if you make a mistake, you rip it out and you build it new. You can't do that with people. Oh, I tried, but God didn't need my help for that. Boy, I've tried helping God so many times in convicting people, and I can't do that. God alone does. So we had a call from this church in Campbell River. Now, salmon fishing capital of the world, like the pastor got a call from a church in California. He says, honey, why don't you go start packing? I'll go pray about it. You know, that's the kind of the temptation and so we had eight and a half wonderful years there in Campbell River, a time of healing, a time of growth, a time of harmony with diversity. Once again, the cancer returned for Shirley. Woke up one morning, my 50th birthday, and she felt just to be below where the scar was, below the, the calf of her leg, and there was above the calf of her leg, and there was a little growth almost like the size of a ping-pong ball had popped up overnight. She didn't want to tell me about it because it was my birthday. My twin brother was scheduled to meet us at Nanaimo and we were going to have dinner together and all of that. Uh, but we have the kind of relationship we don't hide stuff. She doesn't let me get away with anything and I don't let her get away with anything. But we also share very openly. and It's not the easiest way to go. And, you know, she can be so stubborn, but... So is her husband. I've had more problems with my wife's husband than with anybody. <laughs> but the, you know what the problem is? We're both in love with the same man. <laughs> and we're both in love with the same woman. We shouldn't be surprised that we have conflicts in marriages because you've got a committee of two people and you both have a vote. And who's going to break the tie? And that's God's plan, an amazing way to work together on that. And so those wonderful, and by the way, she, the night before the, the surgery, she wrote a letter. She wrote a letter to our four kids. By this time, they were all already away from home. Her first surgery, she, the kids needed her. Now she needed the kids. And she wrote them a letter entitled, Fighting and Facing Cancer. How do I face this now? With no, quite assured that it would be the same cancer, and it was. Two hours of surgery in Campbell River. That was 30 years ago. Here she is. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And just seeing God's miraculous hand. And, um, and then a phone call came that changed everything. From a large church in the lower mainland. And the ultimate result was that uh, we felt led to accept that call and had a 100% vote. That's not a bad record. 100% vote in, in favor of our, they never had 100%. Some, some people in church business meetings, it's a spelling problem. They don't know how to spell yes. They walk into a room and the lights dim. They're called to be negative. But 100% vote. And they called us in a great, a blended congregation. We had 350 people that were 65 and over. But we also had 200 kids that were fifth grade and under. So we had, and it was just the beginning of the worship wars. Now that's a term that shouldn't even be there. Those two words don't mix. Worship wars. No. No way, there can be different tastes, but not worship wars. But we try to have music that excited the youth without panicking the old, and that's not easy. 
And so here we were. For the first four and a half years, there was growth, there was harmony, there was excitement, and then the wheels came off. And it was all over ABC. The church today, by our culture, is forced to focus on the ABCs of church success, which is what? Attendance, buildings, and cash. As long as attendance is booming, buildings are busting, cash is flowing, God's blessing. Oh, we have three services a weekend. Cemeteries are growing in numbers too. Dear pastor friend in Abbotsford said, I was at that church for seven years, and during those seven years, we increased significantly. We doubled in attendance, but we didn't grow. We didn't grow in character. We didn't grow in care for the lost. We didn't grow in doing it God's way. And so, uh, my ABCs, when I read this by Richard Foster, he wrote that letter to pastors about attendance, billings, and cash. I just but fell off my chair because that was kind of the core of the issue. The new chairman of the board, that was his focus entirely. Grow us explosively. Boy, grow us. If you grow us explosively in numbers, you can take off you know, six months a year and stay for as long as you want. That's the main thing. But that was not my heart was church health before church growth. Anything that healthy reproduces. And so here we got the wheels came off, a different focus. We got blown out of the water and I was 60 years old. Now what? Now what? Who wants damaged goods? One pastor in that same denomination said, if you ever have a failure in any of the churches in our province, there's a big F written on your forehead. You might as well leave the province. I didn't agree with that. I still don't. Um, because that isn't the way God works, you can be sure. But somehow God had something else in mind, and this is the big picture God. We joined Power to Change, uh, called Campus Crusade at the time, and they wanted a pastor on staff, and, and they realized that they needed a, a closer relationship with churches and what have you. And out of the ashes of what we thought was failure, God sparked a whole new flame, a whole new ministry, working with whom? Wounded pastors. <laughs> it's best if you can walk in moccasins with them. And so for about 17 years, well, I thought we'd be there with them for a year or two and get healed up, and then I'd find another good church, and I'd go back to pastoring. But God had something else in mind, to minister to weary, wounded pastors. And for those 17 years, we had 56 five-day retreats, allowed no more than six couples per retreat. We had 700 pastors and wives come from 65 different denominations, from 30 countries of the world, from 25 American states and eight Canadian provinces. And we were filled just about, never allowed more than one couple per denomination because our focus was safety and reality. Those who got real got help. Those who didn't get real left unchanged. That's what happens in church every Sunday. If you don't get real when you come here, you will leave unchanged. But if you come with a reality hunger for God and righteousness and knowing what God the Lord has to say, not some human being, but God has to say, then you will leave changed and God's grace will do that for his glory. And so ministering to these, and then, by the way, with that, that ministry is going on today. We turned it over to a younger couple about five years ago. I just got a letter from them yesterday and they just finished another retreat. And the same 10 staff that we had then are still there. And to realize God has a ministry that bears fruit. When you, when you give me a wounded healer any day, because wounded wounders need help too. Pastors don't have any problems because they got the answers to everybody else's problems. But if they do and they get real, then they walk with you because in every pew sits a wounded soul. And to minister to the wounded out of woundedness. And so God had a blessed surprise for us ten years later. What was that? Total reconciliation with that church that wounded us so deeply in the Fraser Valley. Ten years later, 
they got in touch with us and said, we want to get reconciled. It takes only one person to forgive, and that's what we'd chosen long ago. If we hadn't forgiven, we would have ministered out of bitterness. When you don't choose to forgive, you will move into bitterness. And so, um, to work with, with, with these pastors and, and, and these, these missionaries and, and to see God work in their hearts and lives and to see them transformed and changed. And when this church wrote us and said, we'd like to reconcile with you, and we worked with them, and sure enough, there was a sense of, see, when you, when you have reconciliation, it takes two or more. Forgiveness only takes one. Reconciliation means everybody takes responsibility for their own fault. The hardest words in the English language, even in the church, is, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Why is that so hard? To just be real. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And to make apologies and genuinely deal with stuff and take ownership of that stuff. And so that's exactly what happened. And so, uh, that Sunday of reconciliation was just the most awesome. And by the way, Shirley and I are still looking for other churches to do the same thing, take ownership of their own stuff. Still haven't found any. I've looked all over. And uh, if you've been part of anything like that, you know what I'm talking about. When nobody's willing to take ownership, it's just together. You're, oh, let's, let's have a reconciliation. Uh, we're not going to put blame on anybody. Nobody's going to take ownership. We're just going to say, you're hurting, we're hurting. Let's get together and sing Kumbaya and say we're reconciled. That's not reconciliation. That just makes it worse. And so... Uh, Finishing well is so important, and even in Scripture, so few finished well, so few. So when we were about to retire from ministry with not really retired yet, I just don't get paid to be a Christian anymore, so in that sense, I guess I am, I am retired. But when we had our final day with them, they wanted us to come back to the head office in Langley and speak to the chapel of a couple of hundred of their staff, many of them college students, young. They wanted, wanted us to share testimony of, in these 57 years of ministry, what have you learned? My, I changed it immediately to what am I learning? Because if it's what have I learned, that speaks of finality. What, what am I learning speaks I'm still. The moment I quit learning, I die. I better keep learning. If I want to minister to young pastors and young couples, I better keep reading books. I better keep leaving, listening to some music that may not be my particular. The, the deacon in one of those churches said, when the trumpet of the Lord sounds, if it's got a beat to it, I ain't going. Well, having worked with him for a while, he may not be going. I'm not so sure. I mean, that's... Uh, up to, to God alone to decide. And so they, what have you learned? And so we shared with them the four anchors, the four anchors that our ministries, all of those years have been part of consistently and uh, to, to have those in mind continually to realize that these anchors we are foundational. And here they are. Number one, God always has the final say. He always has the final word. Whenever you have increased sovereignty, it always results in increased humility. You join John the Baptist then when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 5, He is Lord and Master of all. Putin doesn't have final say. Obama doesn't have final say. Trudeau doesn't have final say. Trump doesn't have final say. Clinton doesn't have final say. God has final say. He's blessedly in control. And that's what lets me sleep at night, to know that God always has the final say. Jesus prayed in the garden, oh, let this cup pass from me. When your 15-year-old grandson is dying of cancer, as our grandson did three years ago, and you feel so weak and so you inadequate and you realize, oh God, we prayed for miraculous healing. Oh God, you've done it for Shirley. Why don't you do it for Jordan? But the Lord let him die. God has final say. Our date, our calendar is already written as to, we're, we're invincible until our time is up. Invincible until our time is up. And... Uh, to me, the second anchor is God's word always has final authority. 
always has final authority. My life's pivotal question is, is it biblical? We all choose the voices that we listen to, the books that we read, the authors and speakers we respect and believe. I want a God that's bigger than my brain. I want God's word to be my final authority. And that gives me an anchor in life. And number three, no one in, is going to get through life unscarred or unscathed by pain. Then what? Sooner or later, pain gets stamped into your passport. It's unplanned. It's unwanted. The twin driving passions in our culture is avoiding pain and finding pleasure. And the most frequent response to shocking news is, Oh my God, why? Oh my God, no. A high school in the U.S. on their bulletin board had this sign. In case of a nuclear attack, the Supreme Court ruling against prayer in schools will be temporarily suspended. That's pretty realistic. Then it's okay to pray. When five police officers get, get shot in Dallas, Texas, oh, but then the, now we can pray. And nobody, nobody will stop us. And so no one is going to get through life unscarred or unscathed by pain of some kind at some time in some way. And then what? And then God is still God. And finally, the fourth anchor, all of life is a struggle to move us from the tight fist of control to the open hand of surrender. We're born with a tight fist. We die with open hands. And the sooner we move to the open hand of surrender, the sooner we move to the attitude, not my will, but thine be done. I came not to be ministered unto, but I came to minister. Born to serve. Born to serve. And you know, herein lies the root of all conflict, of all divisions, of all wars, of all hatred, of all crime, of all violence, of all jealousy, of all family strife. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who came to earth with a message, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He also came saying, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. And he alone can set you free from the need to control, from addictions, from greed, from from lying, so it's always a problem of the heart. Politics can make all kinds of laws, but they can't change hearts. No guns, no bullets, no prisons, no bombs will change that. All of them will result in further pain and retaliation and bitterness. The truth alone will set you free. So we have the period of unique preparation. You have the period of actively serving. Now, the final one, and I'll close in five minutes, the period of freely available. Freely available. Called retirement years. Now, let me read these words from Psalm 71. Do not set me aside when I am old. Do not abandon me when I'm worn out. Come quick, oh my God, and help me. I will keep hope alive. Now as I grow old and my hair turns gray or drops out. When my hair turns gray, oh God, allow me to share with the generation to come about your power. That's what I'm doing this morning. An old guy sharing with you truth from Scripture for young and aged and middle-aged and all of these periods. God doesn't abandon you. You don't retire from walking with God. Never. Never. I will keep hope alive and let me speak about your strength and wonders to all who are yet to be born. A week from now, another great-grandchild is going to come into this earth and that's going to be ours. And that generation to be able to walk with them. And by the way, you know what our great-grandchildren call us? Lolly and Pop. Lolly and Pop. Lolly. That's kind of unique. So uh, here they are, the message from Scripture again. Your strength and wonders to all those yet to be born, God. Your justice stretches to the heavens. You have done mighty things. Who is like you, O God? Now, for many people, by the way, and most of you are not at this stage, but some of you are, of retirement. This is some of the hardest stages of adjusting to. Hardest. 
radical changes. For a man to retire, he needs two things. He needs a wife and a television set, and they both have to work. Another lady said to her retired husband, now, what are you going to do today? And he said, nothing. She said, you did that yesterday. He said, I didn't quite finish. So it's a, it's a real adjustment. It really is. No longer do you have to go to the office. No longer do you need to clock in. You can throw away the alarm clock. You've got more flex time, but you can be easily bored. You can. Spend your time lighting candles instead of just cursing the darkness. A good friend of mine who's been uh, the model of a pastor and everything now, he's, what, 80, 84, and he's got Alzheimer's. But his theme in life was do a small thing in a fine way and thank God for the privilege. That's it. Freely available. Available. Often you find yourself in Payne University and you said, I didn't enroll for this course. But then you get a non-degree. But you get character building. Tim Hansel put it this way. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. You cannot avoid pain, but you can avoid joy. God gives us the immense privilege to be as miserable as we want to be. In retirement or any time. Any time in life. As miserable as we want to be. God still does His best work in the most difficult of circumstances. And Shirley and I have found what has helped us in these times, in these years, are that we begin every day with a twofold commitment. First of all, we pray together. Romans 8.28. Romans 8. All things work together for good in the King James. But the... the uh, Voice translation puts it this way. We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. Yes, yes, yes. The big picture God is in control. He's in charge. And then the second commitment, we express our core values, our ABCs, not attendance buildings and cash. Our ABCs are availability, brokenness, and connection. Availability, which says, God, anything, anywhere, anytime, at any cost. Not my will, but thine be. Now, I've come to serve. I don't know what you've got in mind for me today. I've got some things on the calendar, but they're all penciled in because God has the big eraser. He's got the big eraser. So attendant, or rather availability, brokenness. Now, what's brokenness? That's hard to explain. Generally, it takes some painful experience to break us. And when we're bro- you can't hide brokenness, but you can hide pride. And it just becomes who you are and you minister that way. Brokenness and connection. Connection is connection with God, first of all, to walk with God and then to be open to be connected with people because there are needy people and we could just give give story after story how that works and we get back in the car. Wow. The waitress at the restaurant the other day spent 20 minutes with us. She said, I'm 28 and I've been part of the party crowd at Big White and I, 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 I'm sick and tired of it, getting drunk and all of that type of stuff. And she starts opening up. We got back in that car. Huh? That's what we prayed. Connection. Available, broken, and connected. So every day can be exciting. In fact, somebody as well said, life begins at 80. Moses started his leadership. For 40 years, he learned to be a somebody, and for 40 years more, he learned to be a nobody, and then for 40 more years, God used that nobody to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so I quote from a good friend, well, a good friend of my son's, when he found out that he had incurable lung cancer, and I don't, as far as I know, everything is ticking just right, and so I'm thankful for that. And... um, But Rob put it this way, I feel that I am perhaps on the threshold of the most profound and prolific time of my life with a deepened sense of privilege to serve the Lord in whatever ways and with whatever time that he gives me. And surely I sense that somehow, even at 80, God says, Pete, I'm not finished with you yet. I've only just begun. Shirley gave me a plaque for our 50th anniversary. Grow old with me. The best is yet to be. The best is yet to be. And when we were in England, 
in London, went to St. Paul's Cathedral Sunday morning, Anglican Church. I used to think Anglicans were part of God's frozen assets, but I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I've met some of the most godly people are Anglicans. By the way, there will be no Baptists in heaven. There will be no Mennonites in heaven. There will be no Anglicans in heaven. Only those who really know the Lord. And uh, not having your name on a book title somewhere does not make it real. But when you walk with God and with Jesus and you're available for him. And so we went to that Sunday morning service and one of the was that the BBC Orchestra was playing that morning. And we thought it would be a cultural experience. But boy, oh boy. That vicar, they call pastors vicars there. The pastor spoke on Christian joy, and the title was, Come Snicker with a Vicar. That's a kind of an interesting t- sermon title. And, uh, but this vicar spoke on the sovereignty of God, and he closed with this statement. We need to come to the time and the place in life where we're willing to say this to God. For all that has been, thanks. For all that will be, Yes, for all that has been, thanks, for all that will be, yes, this is my story. What's yours? It's just as important as mine. Tell it, share it. You can refute somebody's theology, but you can't refute their testimony. This is what's happened to you. And people want to hear your story. Your story is worth telling. It's a beautiful story with pain with it. You need to hear from pastors sometimes to admit not only all the good things, but the mistakes and the failures and lessons learned through it all. So, this is my story. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for teaching us today. Thank you for your faithfulness and love. And we just want to be available broken and connected. In Jesus' name.